This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Welcome to Master the MRCPCH, our podcast where we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital and give you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. My name is Dr. Rian Thomas and I'm the Digital Learning Education Fellow at Great Ormond Street and a Registrar in Clinical Genetics. In today's episode, I'm very lucky to be speaking with the brilliant Dr. Michael Quayle, a consultant in paediatric cardiology here at GOSH about ventricular septal defects or VSDs. This episode corresponds to lots of domains on the RCPCH theory exam syllabus and the cardiology, from anatomy, identifying clinical features, murmurs, investigations and management. Patients with VSDs could also appear in the cardiology or even history-taking stations of the clinical exam. So all that's left to say is that I hope you enjoy this week's episode. So thank you, Michael, for coming on the podcast today. You are very welcome. So before we get going, um, do you want to just tell me what you'd like people to get out of listening to the podcast today? Well, I think that VSDs or ventricular septal defects are a very good way to think about an important concept in paediatric cardiology, and that's shunts. So there are lots of shunts in congenital heart disease, so ASDs, VSDs, AVSDs, PDAs. Um, and so I think a VSD is a very good framework to think about these problems in general. So I hope that in our conversation today, we can understand it a little bit better and how we can apply those principles to other problems in congenital heart disease. Brilliant. That sounds like an excellent uh, learning point. So should we go right back to the beginning? You can. <laughs> okay. So what is a ventricular septal defect? I don't want to answer that question just yet. <laughs> I okay. want to talk about Ohm's Law. Oh dear, okay. Do you remember Ohm's Law? No, of course not. You should remember Ohm's Law because we, we talked about it a number of I'm years sure ago. I'm sure that we did, yes. Um, so why do I want to talk about Ohm's Law? Do you remember it at all? Honestly? Yes. No, no I don't. So most people have come across it first when they were at school in physics, hmm. when they were learning about circuits, and there was an equation which was that the resistance of a circuit is equal to the voltage divided by the current. So most people had like a pencil scored in the inside of their calculator, kind of VIR in a little triangle. Okay. Um, and so in Ohm's law, it doesn't just apply to circuits, it also applies to, uh, can apply to the cardiovascular system, and in particular the pulmonary vasculature and the systemic vasculature. And that's important because it's actually the main, you know, it's the one of the fundamental reasons why blood shunts whenever we have uh, anatomical lesions in the heart or in the blood vessels. And so whenever we think about, say, for example, an adult, and we, we think about their aorta and their systemic vasculature, the mean blood pressure in the aorta, so not the systolic blood pressure or the diastolic blood pressure, but the mean blood pressure, which is the average blood pressure through the cardiac cycle, is, let's say, for example, 105 millimeters of mercury and I've picked these numbers because they work out mathematically <laughs> and the right atrial pressure which is the other end of that circuit is about five millimeters of mercury so the pressure drop or the difference between those is 100 millimeters of mercury mm -hmm. and then the average cardiac output so the flow going through the aorta with every in a minute is about five liters per minute so if we uh, put that into our equation so with our pressure drop or which is equivalent to voltage at the top which is 100 divided by five which is the cardiac output, we have a measurement of our resistance, which has units called Wood units. 
And for the systemic vasculitis, it turns out to be about 20 or thereabouts. Um, it's probably a bit less than that, but for my numbers, that works. When we think about the pulmonary vasculature, the average pressure in the pulmonary artery is much lower than in the aorta. So it's about 15, and the uh, left atrial pressure is 5. So if we take the pressure drop across the pulmonary vasculature, it's about 10. Divide that by 5 litres per minute, which should be the same on the other side, we get about 2 wood units. So we can see immediately that the, uh, the difference in resistance on the pulmonary vasculature is an order of magnitude lower than in the systemic vasculature. Now, why is that important? Well, if we now go to think about the cardiovascular system in general, we know that it's a system in series. So the blood comes back from the veins in the body into the right atrium, then it goes into the right ventricle, then it goes into the pulmonary artery, and then it goes into the uh, pulmonary capillaries, then into the pulmonary veins, then back to the left atrium, then the left ventricle, then the aorta, then the veins, then the right atrium, the right ventricle, etc. in a big endless loop in series. And so in the adult, there are no communications between those parts of the, the cardiovascular system. But in utero and in developmental life, there are some. So there are some that are designed to be there. Hitting foramen ovale is a normal communication, which uh, in fetal life allows for uh, blood to bypass the right ventricle. So inferior vena cable blood coming back from the placenta, rich in nutrients and oxygen, goes across the foramen ovale into the left heart and then it's ejected into the ascending aorta up to the brain. So the brain gets first dibs and all the good stuff. And then the SVC flow uh, coming back from the upper body actually doesn't usually go through the foramen ovale, it goes into the right heart and then is ejected into the pulmonary artery. But in utero, because the, the lungs are not uh, being used, the resistance of the lungs is very high and it bypasses the lungs through the ductus arteriosus and in, into the lower body. And so those are two communications which are, are designed to be there. But in developmental life, there are also some parts of the cardiovascular system which are close together anatomically. So uh, the left and the right ventricle are close together. The pulmonary artery and the aorta are close together. And in some, some people, uh, because of developmental malformations, communications can uh, occur in these areas. And so uh, the ventricles are one example of this. And so a VSD is really just what it says on the tin. It's a, it's a defect in the septum between the left and the right ventricles and that allows for blood to potentially flow from one side to the other. That's a very long answer to my question <laughs> but excellent that's really really clear and there are different types of VSDs aren't there? There are different types of VSDs and that's kind of what cardiologists we spend a lot of time thinking about that because the location of the VSD has implications for how we repair it, whether it's the size of the VSD, whether it's likely to close on its own, and also the size of the VSD has implications for the clinical presentation of the patient. And so uh, whenever I, I, I took a bit of time to explain the SVR and the PVR, uh, the systemic vascular resistance and the pulmonary vascular resistance at the start, and uh, I said that the SVR was, say, roughly 10 times higher than the PVR. But that's not the case whenever you're just born. Um, or whenever you're in neutral, whenever you're um, whenever you're in neutral, your PVR is extremely high, probably higher than your SVR. Whenever you're born, uh, it drops quite precipitously initially, and then there's a, a progressive further decrease in the PVR from uh, from the, during the first weeks and months of life to until it reaches the kind of the normal levels. 
And so you can see why uh, whenever you have a hole between the ventricles, both ventricles are ejecting blood, the main determinant of whether any blood will go across that VSD and the direction that it'll go across that VSD is actually determined by the ratio of the systemic vascular resistance to the pulmonary vascular resistance. And so if they're both equal, mm. then no blood should cross the VSD. And insofar as uh, the PVR becomes progressively lower than the SVR, then a greater amount of blood can cross the VSD into the pulmonary artery, so in a left-right fashion. Now, if the opposite were to occur, if the PVR for whatever reason was higher than the SVR, and that can occur in a range of situations in infants with PPHN, for example, or even in the in the normal infant just immediately after birth, there can be some delays in the reduction of, of PVR. And in those cases, the VSD might briefly or for a longer period of time shunt right to left. So from the passing of deoxygenated blood from the right heart into the left and into the circulation, the patient might be desaturated. That can also occur later on in life in patients perhaps with unrepaired VSDs. Uh, we can talk about that a little bit later, but pulmonary vasculature undergoes a disease process where uh, it has characterized by high PVR and those patients develop a right to left shunt and that we call the Eisenmenger syndrome. Yeah. Uh, but for the most part, when babies are born, they probably, even if they have a, a large VSD, so a VSD that doesn't cause any opposition to flow through it, it takes a little bit of time for the symptoms to develop. So children might be well for the first weeks of life and then present a little bit later. And what do they usually present with? Yeah, so depending on the size of the VSD, so a very tiny VSD doesn't allow for, regardless of the ratio of the PVR to the SVR, a tiny VSD we call restrictive, meaning that it causes its own opposition to blood flowing through it, so small ones. But with progressively larger VSDs that have become less restrictive through to a, an entirely unrestrictive, a very large uh, defect, which allows the free passage of, of blood through it, and those patients uh, will begin to have signs of high pulmonary blood flow. So they have a lot of flow to their lungs um, and that produces the characteristic features of, of heart failure in an infant. And so in a, on an extreme level, those children will be very breathless with respiratory distress. Mm -hmm. They often become uh, have failure to thrive. They find it very difficult to do the main job of a little baby, which is to uh, drink milk and grow. Yeah. They're spending um, a large proportion of their, their energy basically just coping with this high pulmonary blood flow and so they're very breathless, sweaty with feeds and sometimes cachectic and, and not well grown. And if you see these children they will have a range of clinical features that uh, arise in proportion to the degree of the shunting which is occurring. In contrast another common presentation for smaller defects might be just a, a child with a murmur and we mm -hmm. can have a think uh, a little bit about uh, the different characteristics of, of those children as well. Yeah, shall we pick that up? So should, let's have a think about signs on clinical examination yeah. that might be suggestive yeah. of a, an underlying VSD. So let's think about whenever you, you have a VSD, said there's a range of sizes that's just, you know, there's very small and very big. And so if we start with very small holes, um, what happens? So a bit like a, whenever you have a hose pipe, if you squeeze the end of a hose pipe, which is turned on, the blood comes out or the water comes out faster through the end. Put your <laughs> finger over it, you can feel it kind of like um, pushing against your finger. And, the, and a very small VSD is a bit like that. It produces a small jet of blood, which in and of itself isn't a large volume, but it, it traverses the VSD at a high velocity in proportion to the, the 
pressure difference between the, the left and the right side. And a high-velocity jet produces turbulence. And that turbulence we can detect clinically as a murmur. And so small, the smaller the VSD, the higher the velocity of the jet, the more turbulence, the louder the murmur. That makes sense. So that's one of the one of the characteristics um, of a very small VSD is that it often has a very loud murmur. And so whenever you examine a patient with a very small VSD, it's sometimes called, and this is a, and like so sometimes features in exams, certainly in medical school, probably still in membership exams, the Malady de Roger, which is the kind of the the um the, the tiny VSD with a, a a loud murmur and sometimes a palpable thrill, um so. Uh, the VSD murmur um, typically occurs uh, along the kind of the, the left sternal edge, the lower left sternal edge around to the apex. It's typically throughout systole, so the, the blood begins to traverse the VSD at the beginning of systole and then finishes traversing the VSD at the end of systole. So it's a, it's a pan-systolic or a holo-systolic murmur. And uh, as I said, the smaller it is, the louder it is. So often it can be a, a grade three, four, five out of six murmur. Uh, and whenever we have a grade four, five murmurs, we also should be able to feel a, a thrill in the location of maximal intensity in the murmur. Uh, and that might be all of the clinical findings. There are some complications that can arise even in small VSDs, depending on their location in the septum. And some of the VSDs occur in what we call the perimembranous region which is just underneath the aortic valve and sometimes with relatively small VSDs that jet of blood going from the left heart into the right acts to entrain the the right coronary cusp or the non-coronary cusp which is adjacent to that hole and draw it into the lesion into the VSD and actually can, can close it off and that can be associated with aortic regurgitation so that's one of the complications that can arise and so in a patient with either a known VSD or a suspected VSD, it's a good idea to also listen to see whether there are any, any associated murmurs of aortic regurgitation or clinical other clinical signs of aortic regurgitation. And, and also to say that those children will usually be older. And so, uh, in a, for example, in a, in a clinical exam, those children who might be in a, uh, in, the, in, a, in a cardiology case would usually be kind of maybe school age or a little bit older. That might be a typical mm-hmm. um, age where you would be seeing those uh, patients. They're stable. They don't need anything doing. They're just under kind of surveillance follow-up. And then they make great clinical cases because they've got amazing clinical signs. But then going back to the other end, very large VSDs. We've already said that these are children who present kind of failure to thrive. And as I said, that the, the smaller the VSD, the louder the murmur. The opposite is true. The larger the VSD, the less exciting the murmur is. It's often quite a bit less intense. But there may be some other signs. Patients may even have a gallop rhythm if they have um, mm-hmm. severe signs of heart failure. Um, the respiratory examination is important, looking for respiratory distress, tachypnea, intercostal recession, all of the kind of the typical features of respiratory distress. Hepatomegaly would be another feature. And then also in a clinical exam, these patients may need to be NG tube fed whilst they're waiting for uh, maybe surgical repair. Uh, sometimes uh, children are symptomatic, but they're just a little bit too small to undergo op- an operation at that time. There may be features anatomically that... Uh, mean that you just have to wait a little bit longer or until the child is a little bit bigger but you're fighting against the, the problem of high pulmonary blood flow where the child is is not growing well and so sometimes children need to be supplemented nutritionally with 
high calorie feeds, energy tube feeding, just to get them bigger. Great. So we've kind of covered the presentations in different clinical scenarios. What about kind of investigations? So I guess depending on where you are and what context you meet the child, the investigations will follow from there. From there. Typical investigations that are sometimes undertaken, for example, in the, the infant who's failing to thrive would be, you know, first of all, clinical examination is important, oxygen saturations, mm-hmm. chest x-ray. The findings in the chest x-ray are keeping with the, the problems that we've described. So what you will see is uh, features of, of increased pulmonary blood flow. And so the, the areas of the heart and the vasculature which are receiving extra blood get bigger. So uh, if we think first off the pulmonary artery, the pulmonary artery is receiving this extra blood uh, from the left ventricle uh, and also the, the, the usual amount of blood from the right ventricle. And so it gets bigger. So um, on the chest x-ray, you might see a prominent pulmonary artery bay. So they see a, a kind of the bulge where the mm-hmm. pulmonary artery comes. And then also the branch pulmonary arteries and the uh, the daughter branch pulmonary arteries are bigger, so pulmonary plethora. Also then the left atrium and the left ventricle will be bigger, so there will be overall cardiomegaly in a child with an, an important shunt. And those are quite good pictures to show on a, an exam as well, exactly. aren't they? Very yeah. good pictures to show on an exam. The ECG is will have changes, but they're probably a bit non-specific. You know, as I said, with the, the chambers getting bigger, you may have um, hypertrophy biventricular hypertrophy and certainly in a in a child with a significant shunt in a child with just a just a murmur I wouldn't expect any changes on ECG and then obviously the echocardiography is the investigation that that helps conclude the diagnosis and it provides both an assessment of where the what the diagnosis is you know that it is a VSD and not other forms of, of shunt um, or other forms of congenital heart disease it tells you the size of the whole uh, where it is in the heart, what are the adjacent structures, are there any other problems with the adjacent structures. Um, I've mentioned the aortic valve is an important one to consider. But VSDs often you know, are part of a, a more complex constellation of congenital heart disease problems, so those will also be picked up um, on, on the echocardiogram. Brilliant. And I guess now might be a good time to think about um, differentials as well. So what other things should you be thinking about? You know, obviously the echo would, would give you the answer, but before you had that information. Yeah, I think the, uh, at the very outset, you know, if you're presented with a child with failure to thrive, it's really the full, you know, that broad list yeah. of differential diagnosis at that part. And the clinical examination will help you to narrow that, I think, down mm. to the to a cardiac cause, the presence of a murmur, a gallop rhythm, a respiratory distress, and a hepatomegaly, you know, that would be a, a cardiac cause would, would obviously mm-hmm. want that to be very top of your list. But the other cause of failure to thrive are important. Thinking of, I'd say, the clinical exam, uh, you know, an older child who's well with a murmur, a systolic murmur at the lower left sternal edge and say a, a school-aged child, might be an innocent murmur, so mm-hmm. a stills murmur is in the same area. It has very different uh, auscultatory qualities to VSD. So it's um, it's often uh, quite localised. It has a kind of a, a musical vibratory quality. It wouldn't be associated with a thrill, for example. And it also changes in intensity with position. So a child lying flat, it might be louder, and then getting them to sit up becomes a little bit less audible. So those, audible. So those um, kind of manoeuvres might help differentiate. That would be a sign of an excellent candidate if they were thinking about 
those kind of, of things. So I think we've gone through most of the kind of clinical presentation and investigations, differentials. Shall we move on to have a think about management? Yeah. Again, I kind of appreciate that there'll be acute management of an unwell child versus mm-hmm. long-term management. I suppose first, it's important to remember that small VSDs, quite a large proportion of them can close spontaneously and different Sources say different things, but you know, somewhere between a third or a half or even three three quarters of small VSDs might expect to close in infancy. And so these patients are often followed up in clinic, but if it if it closes, then you can discharge them from cardiology. If we go back to think about a child who um might be symptomatic from a moderate uh, or large VSD, these children are likely to require closure of the VSD surgically, but there will inevitably be a period of time from diagnosis to uh, the time that the, uh, an operation is undertaken. Um, and so those children will be supported um, uh, medically. And so some of the things that might need to be done, uh, so I mentioned that uh, these children's growth needs to be supported, so high energy feeds, and also some children may even require NG tube. And then uh, there's a range of uh, medical therapies which are sometimes uh, used, commonly diuretics, furosemide, and a potassium spurring agent. Uh, in our hospital, we use spironolactone. In other places, amiloride is sometimes used. And uh, if these agents are inadequate, then sometimes other drugs are used, including ACE inhibitors. So as I mentioned before, the VSD shunt in a large unrestricted VSD is, uh, is determined by the ratio of the pulmonary vascular resistance and the systemic vascular resistance. So uh, drugs which can reduce the systemic vascular resistance, such as ACE inhibitors, change that ratio and can uh, reduce the amount of blood going to the lungs. Sometimes these children might even need to be admitted to hospital for support, even onto intravenous diuretics. This sometimes heralds escalation of their surgical listing. And you'll remember, Rain, whenever you were an SHO on the cardiology ward, we would sometimes have uh, infants with VSD shunts who are very breathless. Uh, And these children sometimes even need respiratory support and uh, non-invasive ventilation such as CPAP or OptiFlow are often used. And these uh, have an effect by increasing mean airway pressure and that also acts to increase pulmonary vascular resistance and can reduce the amount of shunt which is occurring. We'd want to avoid pulmonary vasodilators in these patients so we we would want to avoid oxygen where possible because that would act to reduce the pulmonary vascular resistance and could increase the shunt and make a child more symptomatic. Uh, so in those children receiving non-invasive support these would typically be administered with air uh, rather than oxygen. And so those would broadly be the non-surgical strategies which are usually undertaken prior to uh, an elective surgical repair. And then we have sometimes a situation where maybe there are complications in the anatomy or the child isn't well-grown at all, is very small, and there are concerns about operating on the child at that size or weight. Some, this is sometimes more common in an AVSD, an atrioventricular septal defect, um, uh, sometimes where the anatomy isn't completely favourable to the more complicated repair. And we need more time to get the child bigger. And in these situations, a pulmonary artery band is sometimes formed as a temporising measure. And this acts to put a, a restrictive band around the pulmonary trunk, uh, which acts to basically increase the opposition to flow and reduce the shunt. And that is a, a useful tool where um, in a situation where we want to wait a little bit longer before we complete a, a proper operative repair. 
And then we have the, the repair itself, surgically. It's performed usually through a, a, a midline median sternotomy and usually uh, the VSD will be closed with a patch. And these patients uh, may present in clinical exams as well, but the findings are likely to be one of, of a repaired heart disease lesion and so the, the signs will depend on what else is going on in those cases we wouldn't expect for example a murmur from a from a vsd if the, if the patients had a patch closure but they will have a, a surgical scars then occasionally there are some vsds which are uh, amenable to a percutaneous closure so percutaneous i mean a, a trans catheter a device closure using vascular access in the in the in the groin a small uh, devices placed to occlude the VSD that's probably a, a bit less common VSDs in those cases need to be of a of a certain specific and hospitable uh, type to um, to be uh, suitable for a VSD closure device but that is also one type of intervention that can can be used. So I guess those are the main things. I've already talked a little bit about the complications, but just to remember them again, aortic regurgitation from an unrepaired small VSD, endocarditis from a in an unrepaired restrictive VSD. There sometimes can be forms of outflow tract obstruction can arise in the context of a of a VSD, both in the subaortic region but also in the right heart. Uh, something called a double chambered right ventricle can sometimes occur. And then the other uh, complication, which is important to remember, which is thankfully very rare in a patient with a large unrestricted VSD that isn't repaired, um, isn't identified and isn't repaired in a timely fashion, it can develop a form of pulmonary vascular disease due to the chronic high flow and high pressure uh, through the pulmonary vasculature. And in those cases, the pulmonary vascular resistance increases and at a certain level, can uh, preclude closure of the VSD and these patients uh, may go on to develop Eisenmenger syndrome uh, which is thankfully rare in the modern era and that's characterized by the PVR increasing progressively and then finally above the systemic vascular resistance and then the the shunt reverses so instead of being left to right uh, the, the shunt is right to left and those patients become cyanotic with all of the attendant complications of cyanosis. Brilliant. That's a beautiful um, run through of VSDs. So before we let you go, we always ask the same three questions to our guests. No. <laughs> Easy questions, I promise. We also have listeners who are taking their written exams. So are there any kind of classic exam questions that, that pop up about VSDs? It's obviously been some time since I sat my my exams. <laughs> no. I'm very young, it's only a few years. I think for VSDs, sometimes a, a clinical scenario with maybe chest x-ray, clinical findings, and a, and a range of possible heart disease lesions would be one. Sometimes questions about murmurs, the qualities of murmurs. I think we've covered, you know, the kind of the, the characteristics of the murmur, the differential diagnosis of, of some of the murmurs. I think that would be something that, that could be asked. The next question is, are there any useful resources that you'd recommend? Um, I think sometimes it's hard for people to get access, to, you know, for, for example, clinical exam preparation, getting access to uh, patients with signs. Um, VSDs are the most common form of congenital heart disease, so hopefully they're coming through regular general paediatric clinics as well. Uh, it's, it's the most important thing for clinical examination is practice, um, listening to all the children, especially just regular little school-age children. Lots of them will have innocent murmurs. For VSDs and shunts, I think it's good to have a think about more generally about, I tried to start with, you know, the principles of why shunts happen rather than focusing on just 
a VSD is a whole gear or an ASD is this or a PDA is this. It's really to think about why is this lesion causing this range of clinical presentations, you know, from just a murmur to a child in dire straits with heart failure who looks absolutely awful. Um, And to do that, you need to understand about why the blood is shunting in that direction and uh, and then why the drugs you know are able to mitigate it mm. and why the surgical operation is able to, to fix it and um, so I think any hopefully any credible general pediatric textbook I uh, would Should have that enough. there is a the Great Ormond Street handbook um, which has recently been revised and uh, I'm an author on <laughs> the cardiology chapter <laughs> And then the last question is, what are your three takeaway learning points? Uh, Ohm's Law, SVR, PVR, then actually that's it. That's all you need to know. That's it? Yeah. You're going to stick with that? I'm going to stick with that. (laughs) That's great. Thank you so much for uh, your time today, Michael. We really appreciate it. You are very welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. If you want to get in touch, you can do so via social media. You can find Gosh Learning Academy on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We also have lots of exciting new podcasts coming soon. To find out more, search Gosh Pods wherever you get your podcasts.